It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome to today's edition of the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. Filling in for Joe Noga, who's off this week, I'm Cleveland.com Knights Sports Manager, Jamie Turner. And I'm honored to be with the baseball legend, Paul Hoynes, and our special guest, former Indians reliever and current broadcaster, Jensen Lewis. So we get to start right off with the toughest question of the, of the uh, probably the whole podcast. Will we or won't we? And how much longer can this process go? Fire away, boys. <laughs> what do you think, Jensen? Are we going to play ball or not? Yeah, I, I think we will, fellas. But uh, I know in, in the last three to four days, you know, things have really turned on a dime. And, and that's the unfortunate part of this is you heard the commissioner, Rob Manfred, say in his own words, unequivocally, we're going to have baseball 100 percent this year. And then you look at what happens on on Monday afternoon, Monday evening. Uh, the statement's coming out that now he feels doubtful uh, about a season for the 2020 campaign. A lot of the players taking to social media, really venting a, a lot of frustration from basically a walk back of, of what the commissioner had said just a, a few days ago. So uh, just the, the latest episode, guys, and what has been a very, very tumultuous negotiation. If anything, uh, it could be a preview to the bigger collective bargaining meetings they're going to have to have after the completion of what we hope is a full season in 2021. But as it stands right now, I, I firmly believe this is a posturing move from Rob Manfred and the owners. I, I firmly believe that the alternative, the, the catastrophe that would be a canceled season would ultimately put the entire sport on life support. Uh, the, the entirety of Major League Baseball cannot afford to go without some semblance of a championship season and that's why I believe that the way things have been leaked out of the media or things have been leaked from both sides, you're going to have a truncated season. We may not get opening day until the middle of July, maybe even as late as August 1st. There's still some hurdles to go over here, but I, I still do hold a lot of optimism that we will see baseball this season. Yeah, I agree with you, Jensen. I think uh, they're going to play. I think uh, Manfred has too much on the line here. His, his reputation as a deal maker, and he's had years and years of making deals with the association, with the Players Association. He was Selig's lead negotiator, and uh, they, they've, they've had over 20, 20, almost 25 years of labor peace. I cannot believe he's going to let this slip away. And I, I think Tony Clark is in a tough spot. The, uh, the union, uh, the head of the, the executive director of the Players Association, you know, uh, the union has lost lost power. They've 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 gotten squeezed by the owners, and they've gotten squeezed 
by the owners manipulating the system, the system they agreed to. And, and, uh, and, and I think Clark's back is almost against the wall. I think he's, he's got to stand firm here. He's got to take a hard line. But eventually, wouldn't you just like to see Manfred and Clark just talk? <laughs> yeah, get in the room. Yeah, yeah, get in the room. room. I mean, social distance, wear a mask, just kick all the lawyers out and just just talk. Just yeah. do, get a deal done. Yeah, Hoynesy, I agree with you. And, and in light of, of the race relations and things that have that have happened, not only in the country uh, with what's happened with George Floyd, but also now uh, the unity factor that could be bestowed upon not only the American public, but you have a, a white male that's the leader uh, of the owner side and Rob Manfred. You have an African-American former player and Tony Clark. Uh, if there was no better imaging than to have both of these men get into a room, as we talked about, hammer it out just like the old days, get things in line, and then have the lawyers and, and the rest of the negotiating committees dot the I's and cross the T's and then come to a press conference and literally shake hands. Go back and just do it old-fashioned style and say, hey, we're bringing not only our sides together, but in a moment of solidarity and literally a moment of unification, they could go a long, long way in helping recover what baseball has lost in this time. That's a great point, Jensen. I didn't even think about that point, the optics of that. That's a great point for the country. And, you know, the, the, the bad thing is the clock is running here. You know, yeah. every day, how much if they don't want to play into October, the owners, I mean, you're you're talking 60 65 games now with off days, right? I yeah, mean, you could throw a couple double headers in there, but I, they just, it's just like, you know, I knew this would happen. I've seen this happen so many times that nobody, they, these two sides don't make a decision until they absolutely have to. Yeah, that, that's the unfortunate part is, is throughout these three months, Paul, and, and a lot of this has to do with COVID-19 and the regulations and just individual states and jurisdictions having to ease uh, their lockdown procedures to even allow normal economic day-to-day -day business happen, let alone being able to get pro sports back into their operations. Well, we've seen this now for a good four to six weeks where there has been this easing, there has been this ability to be able to go as soon as these jur jurisdictions say, yes, we feel it's safe for you guys to at least start playing games. Well, that time has come and gone. There, there's pretty much widespread throughout all 30 major league cities in those states, uh, with maybe the exception of California, by the time a season would begin, all intents and purposes, it looks like from a health perspective, baseball could have games. There, there won't be fans in the stands to start. Perhaps that's something that if everything goes well, they're able to do maybe in the middle of August and through September. But I'm with you. If owners are going to stay on a hard line and make sure that those TV contracts for the postseason remain unaltered by being able to start the postseason as we would have in a normal set at the beginning of October. Now you're looking at that hard deadline probably being that second to last week in June. Do you, you think that in the last 48 hours, well, maybe 72, the fact that the next contract, next TV contract that is coming, mm -hmm. is a billion dollars, and Manfred, I thought, really kind of stepped in it by, you know, yes, we're absolutely going to have baseball. And then when the players are saying, okay, we'll go by your rules, now he's manufacturing, in my mind, something 
to, well, maybe I, I can't do that. You know, and if you're going to be backpedaling that furiously, where do you go? I mean, is it now the onus on the owners purely or is it still a shared thing? Well, I, yeah. I think the uh, don't you think, Jensen, that the, the threat of the of the players filing that uh, a grievance against the owners, uh, a billion dollar, a one billion dollar grievance. I think that has given them the owners pause just to, hey, we're not we can't really institute this this uh, salary. I mean, this uh, this season, if if we're going to get hammered like we did you know, like 40 years ago in collusion, you know, I mean, those guys got hammered. I mean, in today's dollars, it would be a, huge, but are they really going to do that again? Yeah, yeah. The optics now look even murkier, Hoinsey, to your point, because we, we heard from Bob Nightingale of USA Today that there's a report that several 40-man roster players who have not been named as of this taping uh, have tested positive for COVID-19. Some staff members have done that. And you would think with everything that's happened, let's just go ahead and look at the last four to five days. You go from the commissioner saying unequivocally 100% we're going to play. Then the players sending the letter over on Sunday night, basically saying we're getting up from the table. You tell us when and where and how many games to get ready for. And then in the span of maybe 12 to 18 hours, you have Manfred saying it's doubtful. And then we have this news dump apparently about COVID. And if you remember back in the March 26th agreement, I believe there are stipulations in there that they don't have to set the schedule, the, the owners, the commissioner, they don't have to start the season if there is still this threat for health and safety, which I think if you're, if you're a legal person out there, if you're a negotiator, if you've been back and forth in a court of law, boy, oh boy, is this convenient timing to drop this information when yeah. Trevor Bauer comes out on social media and basically lays bare what the negotiations have been from both sides and has basically called out, you know, the commissioner about what's going on and, and has a lot of support, a lot of unity from the player's side. So let's filter all this down where you currently sit. If you look at a timeline, if indeed the owners are just going to take the hard line and say, we're only doing 50 to 60 games, that timeline now makes sense to try and burn another two weeks, basically run out the clock a little bit, and use this COVID-19 report to say, hey, we still don't know if it's safe enough to get all of our players back together, let alone start playing games. That would indeed buy ownership time to be able to get to that scenario where it would be really tough for an arbiter standpoint to rule in the players' union's favor if a grievance is filed to say, well, ownership and the commissioner did not do their best to play as many games as possible because now ownership will come back and say, well, hey, we had these reports. This is what was going on. We cannot risk our product, meaning the players. We can't risk our players getting the virus and then not being able to play games whatsoever. So I, you can see where the negotiating tactics are. To me, I feel it's plain as day. But I'm with you, Hoinsey. And it, when you get down to it, I wish when everything happened at the end of March and spring training was shut down, I know hindsight is 2020. But if you're Manfred and you're Tony Clark, you kind of get together at that point because you know you're going to be down for a while. They imposed, what, the eight to ten weeks uh, that they were they were not going to do any activity. I, I wish that they could have you know, even gotten on a Zoom call or gotten into a, a scenario where it was just them and said, we've got an opportunity here because if this breaks our way, let's be ready and let's try and get through some of this stuff while the entire focus of not only the country but the world – I mean, we all live through it, guys – 
every single day. What did you wake up to on the news? How many new cases? How many new states are locked down? I mean, they could have flown so far under the radar, hammered all this stuff out. And then once the easing started, man, would they have looked squeaky clean coming out saying, we worked through a pandemic to make sure that when it was physically possible and safe to do it, we were going to be back to baseball. They've lost that opportunity now. And every day that goes by, it's a bigger black eye for not only the ownership side, but for the players in the league as well. Yeah, that's uh, uh, and <laughs> Jensen, I, I still this is the thing I don't get. These guys agreed to this uh, this March 26 agreement, you know, when the after the season was delayed and <laughs> both. And I thought that was a great move. I thought that was yes. hey, this is this is a this is a harbinger that w- w- this thing is going to sail right through. We're going to have right. a, a great we're, th- somehow they're going to have a season. And, you know, going into 2021, the basic agreement is going to be like a cakewalk. But these guys, I, w- I would like to see who wrote this agreement where <laughs> one side feels like you know, we can't take a pay cut. We're, you know, we, you, you guaranteed us our prorated pay. And the other side feels, well, if there aren't fans in the stands, we can come back and ask you for another cut. I, I don't, I, who, who's writing, who's writing that? Who's, yeah. who, who are the lawyers that, that you had writing that where no one understands anything? It is a real great case study for any you know law student in, in every college in our country, because it does deal literally with what people in that business and those corporations that deal with contracts and language every day, every side feels they will interpret it in a way that favors them. I think anyone could agree on that statement. When you look at how that agreement, and at least an addendum there that the March 26th agreement is, you can see from both sides how yeah. each side believes they're in the right. And and I'm with you. I, I Again, I'm not a lawyer. I've never gone through anything like that. I don't know how to write you those. Went, you went to English class, didn't you? Yeah, you, I you did. English. <laughs> you could write a simple sentence where, I, where I, it says one thing, it's black and white, one thing or the other. These guys I, didn't do that. My, my Vanderbilt uh, communications professors in English <laughs> department would, would, would definitely agree with me on it. I, at least from that standpoint, Hoinsey, I'm with you. And, and I, I think the one thing I'll, I'll kind of leave on, because I know we want to move on here. The, the one thing I, I look at in these negotiations is, okay, if I'm the executive committee, and, and I was an alternate player representative for the Indians for a couple of years, I had to go through two different bargaining agreements. I'm well aware of the process. It's never, it's never smooth sailing, but the leaks, the leaks are, are really, really hurtful on both sides. Uh, we were fortunate that social media was just getting to be prominent back in 2008, 2009, and then 2010. I, I really feel like those issues, and, and Hoinsey, you and I go a, a long way back from the player to reporter situation to now being on the same side of the media. I understand there's a job to do for both sides. To me, I feel like both sides did a disservice to themselves for whoever was leaking whatever details were out there, because that's where the trust factor is. And, and let's be honest, it all comes back to two things, money and trust. And both both these sides are really, really upset with the other, whether it's the fault of their own or whether it's not. That, in turn, from having been through these processes, I think that is a huge issue that has allowed this process to unravel. Well, we've now uh, taken the first half of today's podcast and spent a lot of time on law. But we got a Paul Hoynes rant, which is a really good thing <laughs> to keep it, keep us uh, fueled. 
So we will be right back uh, after this short message and actually talk some baseball. All right, we're back on uh, Cleveland Baseball Talk, the podcast uh, with Paul Hoynes and our guest, Jensen Lewis, uh, Indians broadcaster, former pitcher. Uh, I'm Jamie Turner filling in for Joe Noga, and let's talk a little bit of baseball. Uh, And I'm curious, Jensen, what your uh, thoughts would be on, we're going into obviously a very short season. Paul has said what the Indians record was after 50 games last year and where that would (laughs) have put them. But is it better? I, I look at the Indians roster as it's currently con, uh, composed uh, a veteran infield, veteran catching, some veteran pitchers, Carrasco and Clevenger, but guys who've really shown a lot in their little limited time on, uh, you know, in the major leagues. Is it better to have a little older roster for a 50 game season? I, I kind of liken it to a crapshoot, to be honest with you, because there, there is so many intricacies of a marathon uh, that are, are so synonymous with a baseball season. We are, we are now used to, under Terry Francona, where this team, it just takes a while for them to establish their identity. And, and regardless of the makeup of what the roster is, those first two months, for whatever reason, it's almost a feeling out period where – you have your usual suspects in Lindor and Ramirez. And, and now that Lindor, uh, you will have him healthy at the beginning of the season for, for all we know, that's going to be a huge, huge thing in a, in a truncated season. I always like in April and May, too, to where pitching will beat hitting. And until it really warms up, you'll rely on a lot of the dominant arms. Well, the Indians have a huge advantage in that category because the time layoff has allowed the likes of a Mike Clevenger and a Carlos Carrasco to get healthy. Heck, you might even see Emmanuel Classe be able to, to find his way in there. He won't be postseason eligible, but he could help you in a 50-game season, whereas we thought he'd be lost for almost two to three months. That in that being said, every team has a chance in a 50- to 60-game season. You, you hear football coaches talk about, hey, we're going to script the first 15 plays. I, I think the first 15 games of this 50-60 game season are the most important. They're going to be postseason games. You have to treat them that way because let's say, for instance, the Detroit Tigers get out to a 10 and five start. Let's say the Indians are seven and nine, you know, seven and 10, and they, they're still trying to, to, to put it together. All of a sudden, a fifth of your season is gone. And if you go on a four or five game losing streak, you could be eliminated in the first three to four weeks because there's just not time to be able to catch up. The other part of this season that is really going to reveal a lot about each team. It doesn't sound like we're going to have a minor league season. And how many times in the past four to five years have the Indians, at least specifically, relied on reinforcements, whether it be due to injury or whether it be slow performances out of the gate? And you've had guys that have gotten off to really hot starts in Columbus. They've injected a lot of energy when they've come up, and they've been difference makers down the stretch. I think the loss of the minor league season, I don't even know if people realize how monumental a loss that is for a lot of these organizations that rely on their minor league depth to help them through the course of the season. So that's something to keep in mind, regardless of how the Indians start, whatever the schedule is, whoever they play. I think those first 15 games are incredibly important, regardless if it's a young team or an old team. 
And then let's see who's on this taxi squad. Whatever Major League Baseball deems the roster expansion will be, let's see who the Indians decide are their most valuable guys in what's basically going to amount to a sprint. I think you're going to see some young kids. I don't know if Nolan Jones is going to be an opportunist here in this situation, but you might see some guys that are able to take advantage and with expanded rosters for that at least that first month, that's going to be another element of this whole season that's going to add a lot of intrigue. That's a great point, uh, Jansen. What do you, you know, I, when I think about, you know, when I think about a, a short season like this, does that negate the Indian strength, which is starting pitching? Is Clevenger going to be able to go eight innings right out of the gate? Or are you, are you, are you, are you going to have to build them up like, like spring training, like t- three, four, you know, piggyback two starters in a game, you know, yeah. and, and that, and I just wonder if that, you know, if that really hurts, hurts the tribe. It's a non-ideal scenario for Terry Francona to have as many bullpen arms as he wants, even with, you know, the new restrictions this year for 26 man rosters, only 13 pitchers would be allowed. I've got a feeling that MLB is going to allow a relaxation of the bullpen arms or whoever's going to be on an active roster day to day. I would fully expect that in speaking with Carl Willis, probably a few weeks ago when we did an interview with him on sports time, Ohio, that their plan, at least, and they, they haven't said anything, but just inferring from how workouts have gone, you've got guys that are pitch-wise, physically ready to throw four to five innings. Now, when you get into a game, that's going to translate into probably three to four innings. That being said, that's going to allow a lot more guys to get in a game, and I think you protect your starters probably for those first two weeks because if you kind of backtrack yourself, you'll get three weeks of the spring training 2.0, plus those first 10 to 14 games. So let's in essence say two to three times around the rotation. Guys will probably have six to seven starts at that point. So you feel like they'll be able to go five. I can't envision guys going anywhere into the eighth inning unless it's just uh, an unforeseen circumstance where they've got 70 pitches and they've just been so methodical they've gotten through there. I don't foresee any manager allowing that to happen until they can take stock of where those guys physically are more so on the recovery. So that start day and then being able to monitor them because they haven't had all that buildup and all this downtime, that's going to be something to watch as well. Yeah, that's, uh, and I just, you know, I just think of the, what the Nationals, 50 games into the season, they had won 19 games. They were 10 games <laughs> out of first place. Right. And at least, and they end up winning the World Series. So this is nothing like you, you can't compare this to anything. And then, no. What are they going to have? Is is it going to be a 16-team postseason? I mean, I know that's some they've been kicking that around, and then it's going to be it's going to be wild if they ever get on the field. Yeah, as it stands right now, Hoinsey, as I as I uh, comprehend it, without an without an agreement between the players' union and MLB ownership, the postseason will remain as it has been in the past. So you'll have your three division winners and your two wild cards. If there is an agreement. And in their last proposal, the Players Union did offer expanded postseason, not only for this year, but also for next year. What I thought was an incredibly smart move, knowing you're going into the final year of what is the existing collective bargaining agreement. So if nothing else, Lindsay, you get the opportunity in a short sample this year and then hopefully in a full 162-game sample next year to see how it works. If you don't like it, you're not barred in and having to do that for the next three to four years. You can collectively bargain in the offseason to say, well, maybe it's six teams. Maybe that's the sweet spot and we go from there and, and they work those things out. I'm personally in favor 
of the expanded postseason, especially for this year, because now in a, in a, in a year where I firmly believe all 30 teams are alive, it, it's going to matter how you start. It's like a Formula One race for any race fans out there watching this. Formula One is all about the start. If you get out, you set yourself up for a really, really good day. If you don't, you can lose the race in the first lap. So I think that's critical for guys, especially teams that are going to have to rely on their starting pitching as the Indians will, but it sets up beautifully for them. If they get out to a fast start, they can now kind of sit back on those horses, allow their offense. If they don't get a fast start from them to be able to kind of catch their breath, because it's going to be a sprint. And I'm really fascinated. This is going to be great for you guys too, that write on the beat and, and cover this every single day. There are so many different narratives and storylines that will play out because guys will come to the yard every day. Every game matters. Every win and every loss is going to be a massive swing in a 50 to 60 game season. So you'll see guys that without fans in the stands, maybe react differently. You're going to hear things, guys grunting on the mound, guys talking to themselves in the batter's box, guys chattering during the field. I mean, it's going to be a little blend of when we were amateurs in high school and there wasn't all these thousands of fans around to, wow, I didn't know Max Scherzer grunted that hard when he threw. Wow. I didn't know Trevor Bauer was, you know, as, as open and, and, you know, just doing all kinds of things on the mound that he did. Heck, I didn't know Aaron judge grunts when he hits the ball. I mean, there's so many other things that this opens up. You love having fans because personally I knew that I got a huge adrenaline kick coming in from the bullpen, especially there at progressive field. When those fans got up for two strikes and you're trying to get that third, I mean, it does change gameplay. It does change how the players will react. So that's something I'll be watching too. Is there something to uh, for players to actually grab onto as far as I worry about how distorted the season's going to be? Mm-hmm. If you're going to have uh, at the end of the year, assuming we have normal uh, awards, you're going to have a Cy Young Award winner who had 45 innings, <laughs> right? And I- and and a, a batting champion who only had 184 at-bats or, or something along that line, which to me as a, as a purist, quote-unquote, uh, that's just so weird. I'm, I'm having right. a hard time getting my head around it. How about you? Yeah, I, I, I think, and, and I'll let Hoynesy chime in because he's seen a lot more postseasons than I have. Uh, I, I feel like the players, knowing that, Man, you, you hope that there is not an issue like this pandemic that we ever have to deal with again in our lifetimes. It, it, it feels, as a younger person and, and talking with a few of the guys, you have just – for baseball, we read and react. You know, every single day we, we've got to deal with failure. We've got to deal with adversity. And I feel like all these guys understand that it's about just playing. And you may look back at this year and say, well, nothing went right. You know, whether it was on the field, whether it was off the field – so if, if you don't have a good year, you can say, well, you know, it, it, this, these are all the things we're up against. If you do have a good year, you got an opportunity to play in the postseason. Hopefully there's fans there. Well, it wasn't the marathon you had to run, and you're still playing for the trophy to hoist at the end of the season. There's not going to be an asterisk next to it other than, hey, there was a global pandemic, and this is why this season was shortened. There wasn't cheating, at least that we know of. The, I mean, who thought who thought the Astros would get booed less right now than yeah. what Rob Manfred is? You know, <laughs> I, I never would have thought that this year. Uh, I think we were all kind of interested to see how they would be received. 
And then even so, when the World Series trophy was going to be handed out, would whoever takes it from the commissioner, would they physically take it because he called it, you know, a piece of metal? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that didn't go over well either with the players. So I, I, to, to answer your question, I, I feel as though these guys will play out. Just tell them how many they've got because everyone's going to be in the same boat. They're going to hand out awards. They're going to hand out a trophy. You're going to get a ring. And no one can take that away from you, whether you played 50 games or 162 games. So I think that'll be the mindset for all those guys going in. Yeah, I think I, I agree with that, uh, Jensen. And I, I wonder, you know, just like from the BBWA standpoint, I wonder if they, they'll even, you know, hand out Cy Youngs and MVPs yeah. in Rookie of the Years. I, I wonder if that will even, you know, come they'll award those awards this year just because of the shortened season. And, you know, some guy hits 400. I mean, you know, I don't know. It's as if, yeah, every, a lot of guys have hit 400 over 50 games. But uh, so I, you know, I, I, I don't, I have no knowledge of what, what, you know, the, the, the baseball writers association of America is planning, but I, I would think that would be an option. Moving on to, and this will wrap things up for, for today's show uh, Jensen, you have to be about as sympathetic to the players who were undrafted oh. as as anyone. You were a very late draft selection, thirty third round, uh, yes, somewhere yeah, thir- somewhere in that neighborhood. Thir- yeah, thirty third out of high school, and then uh, third rounder uh, out of uh, Vanderbilt to my junior oh, okay. year of college. Okay. Yeah, and and those guys didn't play a season, so. How, what do you think these guys are going through realizing they've just lost a whole year? Yeah, I, I actually had the opportunity. My, my birthday was in May, so my parents were able to come up because of all the easing of restrictions now and, and the lockdown. So it was great to be with them. And we, we also were reminiscing about how weird it is, you know, to have them come in town and, and not be coming straight to the ballpark, uh, you know, to, to watch the games and then we go home. But yeah, I, I know throughout my youth and, and going through high school and getting recruited by colleges and knowing that, you know, the opportunity for pro ball was going to be there. It was, a, it was really a decision. Do I want to forego, you know, a full ride scholarship to Vanderbilt and, and start my pro career? Heck, I was drafted by my childhood dream team at 18. You think, you know, everything you're like, mom and dad, this is never <laughs> going to happen again. I mean, this is a dream come true. And, and they were really smart. And they said, nah, you probably need a little more development. You need to learn how to live on your own. And it was the best decision I ever made. You know, going to school, uh, the baseball aside was icing on the cake. But you learn so many different things as a as a collegian, as a student athlete, and that helps you prepare for the rigors of minor league baseball. The competition takes care of itself because you're playing in the SEC or you're playing, you know, in, a, in an elite level of college baseball. But it's about how you are able to function and problem solve and have time management and discipline. I, I feel so badly for the guys that were in the worst case scenario in college, meaning the juniors who had to really make a decision, okay, I I wanted to go into my junior year and be able to improve my draft stock. So you might've seen guys that went undrafted that, heck, if they had a really breakout campaign, could have gained themselves hundreds of thousands of dollars by moving up possible draft boards. They were not afforded that opportunity and it's not their fault, but now it becomes a very difficult decision to say, all right, most likely there's not going to be summer college leagues that a lot of these guys will go play in. It's an exposure to wood bats. It's their first time to really show major league scouts that they can handle what will ultimately be professional baseball. 
And then they're playing against all-stars, basically. It's the best from college teams that are going to be put in, you know, the likes of Cape Cod, which I got to play in for a couple of years, the NECBL, uh, the Great Lakes. There's a lot of great college leagues. But that's really a, a troublesome point for those kids is not only the competition part, but also think about the scholarships. Because when you're a college recruiter, you're kind of assuming that your upper echelon guys as your juniors, you have a, a, a sense of, okay, well, I can kind of earmark this guy's scholarship for another guy we may be trying to recruit and come in. That's not the case now because there's decisions from some of these draft-eligible juniors or actual juniors that are saying, hey, I am going to need that extra year of eligibility. And I think the NCAA did the right thing by awarding those juniors the extra year, those seniors the extra year to come back. You hope that they're able to play a full season next year, and you hope that the draft goes back to what it usually is in the 40 to 50 round category. But I'm with you. I mean, there, there are so many guys that had to make life-changing decisions this year. The high school seniors that didn't get an opportunity to improve their draft stock, now they've got to decide, all right, I, I kind of hoped I, I would get drafted so I could go play. Some of these guys may not be cut out for college. Maybe they just don't want to do the student part of it. And they felt like I just can go play and then I'll, I'll make my way from there. So it's incredible how, how COVID has really affected the baseball minor leagues, the baseball draft, and how really organizations are built from the ground up. Jensen, what, what, what can you tell us about Mason Hickman, a Vanderbilt guy that the tribe uh, drafted with the fifth, their fifth uh, pick? Uh, you, you knew that uh, that was going to be a, a great sense of pride for me. And, and uh, I was actually texting with the assistant general manager, Carter Hawkins, who was my battery mate back in our Vanderbilt days. Uh, he caught for me uh, for a couple of years there. And, and now he's uh, he's ascended and done a fantastic job with Scotty Barnsby, who actually was the regional cross checker uh, that, that submitted my name to Brad Grant to be drafted by the Indians. So it, it's a small world, man. It, it was really cool to, to be able to interact with those guys. And, and I texted Carter and I said, hey, man, this is a great way to finish the draft. We got a Vandy guy. And uh, he said, he said, I, I'm, I think it's the first one that we've drafted since you back in 2005. And, and Hoynesy want to go back and look at this because right off the top of my head, I'm thinking we, we've had to have drafted some Vandy guys. And I know we've drafted Vandy committed guys out of high school, but they've right. gone on to sign. So I'll have to go do my due diligence on that. But it, it, it was crazy to think it's been 15 years since we've taken an actual guy who's in Vandy, he's a junior, he's a senior. When you look at him, 6'6", he's a huge specimen. He's a great dude. Innings eater, durable. He creates a lot of down angle, a lot of plane to the fastball. He's probably not going to overpower guys the way his arsenal sets up, but it is really deceptive, and it's really hard to be able to try and get on top of that ball. But in our age of launch angle, I think guys will find it even more difficult because his off-speed stuff has a lot of great depth. He's a guy that obviously pitching – in the SEC, went 19-2. and two. He knows how to win. He knows how to pitch. He's a guy that you can kind of pencil in as one of those advanced arms that he knows how to go about his business. Now it's just going to be solidifying off-speed pitches, being able to turn teams over third, fourth, fifth time, and then making his way. I feel when you look at him, Tanner Burns, who was in the competitive round there in the first round out of Auburn, you, know, you kind of think about Sonny Gray as his makeup there. Two really outstanding college arms, Logan Allen out of Florida International. It's kind of been the MO of this organization. You draft really well above average, maybe even elite college arms to go quickly, and then you get a lot of the young prospects that are able to develop. I love Hickman. Obviously, I'm biased as a Vandy guy, but you got three arms in that draft this year 
that are probably going to be able to help the Indians a lot sooner than later. Well, Jensen, you've provided an awful lot of information. Uh, this is one of the more uh, rich loads of uh, knowledge that we've had on the <laughs> podcast in a while. Uh, even Hoynesy would probably agree. You're with not that. kidding, man. I appreciate. We appreciate it, Jensen. I, I've, I've gotten uh, that. That should cover you for a couple of Hey Hoynesy mailboxes <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah. For a <laughs> Well, thanks a lot, Jensen. And folks, just come back tomorrow. We'll have another round with Paul. And you never know who might stop by. Have a good night.